0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com.
1: Hey, hey, hey. This is Beer Sessions Radio. It's Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. We're recording in the field. We're talking about Cider Days, Franklin County, a great event in Massachusetts. And I got to visit at Artifact Cider in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So let's introduce our guest. And um, we're going to talk a lot about cider and
2: moving forward uh, with beverages. OK. Hey, everybody. Um, this is Soham Bhatt from Artifact Cider Project.
1: Great. You know, it's like it's Cider Day is coming up and Ben Watson's a good friend. A year ago, he was introducing me to a lot more New England cider makers and your name always keeps coming up. I have to say today is the first time I've sat with you and I'm looking forward to tasting a number of your ciders. Um, how about a little backstory? So I've been reading the American Cider Book by, by Dan and Craig and um, it says a lot about what you're doing. In fact, I think that you being mentioned in that, to me, it puts you on a pinnacle of... You're doing the right thing so tell us give us your backstory some people that have helped influence and shape you and why you're doing CIDA instead of I said cider <laughs> instead of something else
2: um yeah sure um, you know our cider journey started uh, you know quite quite a long time ago um, we I, I like to joke that we were kind of like unicorn customers so we discovered cider my 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 co-founder Jake Mazar and I. Um, we discovered cider together, and it was right around the same time that we discovered craft beer, um, better wine than any wine that we had been drinking as, as young college-aged um, students. And so we discovered it pretty early. There weren't that many options back then. Um, and so we drink, you know, the occasional woodchuck, a Magner's, you know, uh, harpoon was making a cider, and that was pretty much all we could get. And then one day I discovered that there was a producer in Massachusetts uh, by the name of West County Cider. I think I read about them in the New York Times. And I was like, there's this company called West County Cider has been doing this for over 20 years. They're in uh, Western Mass. How do I not know about them? And how do I not know about this idea that like we have these amazing apples, and people have been doing this for this long? And I kind of fell in love around then. Um, by the time I was able to get out there and meet Judith and Field, you know the the cider epiphany had already happened. I had had a bottle of their dry Baldwin. Jake and I were sitting there. I remember in our in our kitchen, um, the fanciest bottle of anything we had ever bought. Uh, you know we were we were too young to buy anything cork and cage at that time, and we were just amazed by what how it tasted and how you could do something like that with apples. Um, so that was probably when the bug caught me. Um, A few years later, you know, we, as we grew, we kind of developed our careers. Um, We were looking to make some kind of change in the world. Um, And our our interests kind of aligned around food, food ways, cultural food ways, um, environment, uh, you know, craft production, doing something for ourselves. And the perfect kind of meeting point of all of that was cider. We had, this amazing history uh, and these amazing apples in the Northeast, um, there, weren't, there was this gap between people who understood what the kind of craftier artisanal elements were, and then there was kind of this larger population of people who were interested in cider but just didn't know enough. And I think for us, it was like, maybe we can create some change, get people to understand that cider is a fundamental part of the culture of the Northeast. And for people that looked more like us, younger people, more diverse, um, and show them that like, hey, we can be proud of something, too. And cider's our thing.
1: You know, tell me about some of your favorite apples. What what I know is that New England seems to have a plethora of old varietals and old trees. You know, there's guys like Steve Wood at Farnham Hill. And you mentioned the Maloney's at West County who have been doing this for, for longer than the rest of us
2: yeah so I have a you know in terms of apples, I think that what's exciting for me is that we think we know a lot about apples, but we still have a long way to go in understanding how we can apply cider uh, apples to cider. so we have there's European traditions, which I think in the early days of cider making in the United States was a a, a heavy influence. so that's where you start seeing the idea that you need tannic or bittersweet apples or bittersharp apples from England or from France to really make a good quality cider. Um, I think that what was so cool and what, what the Maloney's really broke open was, hey, you can take modern winemaking techniques like what they were doing in California and apply them to apples that might not have traditionally been used for making cider. And so what you can get are these interesting expressions, fresh, fruity, champagne-like without the need for tannin necessarily. Or you can try discovering new apples just through the old-fashioned way of seedling orchards. You know, they had Pippins, a Pippin cider before anybody else did. Before anybody had any wild apple exhibitions, they'd been making a Pippin cider for 10 years from a seedling from their own home. Macintosh, one of the most popular school box apples. We might be sitting on Sauvignon Blanc in the grocery store. We just don't know. And so I love working with, I love trying to work with new apples and figuring out what the best technique is to showcase them in the cider form. So a lot
1: of our listeners are are craft beer people and and, and home brewers. And I know that a a big entryway for a lot of craft beer people was was as home brewers in that arc. Is that the the same for cider people or is it a little different? I know you also do, uh, like with Cider Days, there's giveaways of apples.
2: Yeah, I actually think that in the er- in the earlier days, like meaning about ten years ago, the when this first kind of boom of new cider makers started, um, a lot of them were home cider makers. There was a, a there was a pretty strong tradition of it uh, for a really long time. People were making cider at home, using apples from their own trees, maybe their friends' trees. That oh, hey, I got this old tree in the back. It's got these bitter apples. They make great cider. Um, you know. And I think that a lot of people went kind of commercial that way. Um, nowadays we have a lot of different entry points. You can have people that come from the beer world who are interested in cider. You can have people that come from the wine world that are interested in cider. I actually just read an article the other day that um, a lot of West Coast wineries are starting to plant apples because they're resistant to, to smoke taint, um, the way, you know, unlike grapes. And so there's people coming in from every direction nowadays. Um, but it definitely started as a very strong home amateur cider maker community.
1: No, it's great. And we've been lucky to see the rise of it through like Cider Weeks in New York. And I'm excited to learn more about Cider Days. I want to give a shout out to a few other of your Western Mass uh, colleagues who whose ciders are things that you, you can say these are worth drinking.
2: Sure. So, um, yeah, I would mention, uh, depending on how far we want to go into Western Mass, um, you know, in terms of something that's more accessible, you know, our, our friends at Stormalong are always trying to get more people to understand cider in a good way. Um, Ragged Hill does some, does some really nice ciders. Um, uh, Car's Cider House in Hadley, uh, they, they've really gone the direction of natural cider production in, in a very interesting, compelling way. Um, I really, of course, West County, who I've always, they were my mentors, and so I always kind of turned to them Uh, when I'm looking for cider. There's also a couple new ones. Um, There's an old 100-year-old orchard uh, in New Salem, uh, which is starting to make cider. Um, And the cider maker there, uh, William, was an avid uh, amateur cider maker for a really long time. He used to enter his ciders and win them at the amateur competition at Cider Days. And he's now making cider from these 100-year-old trees. And and his ciders are always very delicious and well-balanced. So yeah, those would be the folks that I probably, oh, and Berkshire Cider Project in, in uh, all the way out in like North Adams. Um, Yeah, those, those guys, they're all worth, all worth exploring.
1: Wow. And so when we're recording now, and I know next weekend, there's a lot of the Cider Days activities. Um, I love all the, the, the places. I've, I've had Ragged Hill, I've had Headwaters, uh, I've had West County, and I still can't believe just how many really good cider makers and farms there are here. Um when you got started and now like where are you sourcing your apples from? You you can give shout-outs to some of the
2: farms and and some of the apples that
1: you're using too.
2: Sure, yeah. So I mean, if you if you kind of look at our menu, we we try and call out the orchards that we're getting a lot of these fru- a lot of this fruit from.
1: We've got some of the ciders here we're at Artifact Cider in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is Boston to me. And um, so we're gonna, he's going to taste us through some of the ciders. And you mind if your uh, staff member introduces herself? Come on, and put them down, and you're going to tell us what you brought us, and then Soham's going to talk about them. So.
3: Well, marvelous. Uh, my name is Lindsay. Um, I've got two flights here for us, one of some of our more mainstay standard ciders, uh, and one of a couple more of the fun projects that we've got going on at the moment. Um, enjoy is there anything uh, great you
1: stay with us for a minute if it's yeah. okay so <laughs> sure <laughs> all right so let's let's start with a couple um when i came into the bar i asked you for a couple suggestions and what what did you end up giving me that i really like
3: yeah we so we started you with the wolf at the door which is a uh, one of our twists on an english style cider um it's tannic it's unfiltered it's a little bit funky uh, that's a fun a fun one that most of us call a favorite around here Um, And then here on the flight for you, we've got uh, the Feels Like Home, which was one of my other original suggestions. It's the first cider that I ever fell in love with from Artifact. Um, It's a blend. We leave it unfiltered. It's got more of that traditional, like, orchard-style cider flavor. But we age it on rum-soaked oak, which adds some nice structure to it. Um, We've got our No New Friends, which is our cranberry fall cider. Uh, We've got the Magic Hour, which is one of our just really classic dry ciders. Um, and the Gold Rush, which is my personal favorite of the seasonals at the moment, and that's like a table cider style. Um, And then a couple of our funkier projects, the Roxbury Russet is made with 100% Roxbury Russet apples. Those were the first apples uh, ever discovered growing wild in the U.S.
2: The first named variety variety. in Roxbury, Massachusetts, 1640. It's a long time ago.
1: (laughs) Roxbury used to have a it was it has an urban reputation, but it used to be just like in New York, like Newtown Pippin. That was in the, the the creek in Queens, New York City. All right. So thanks, Lindsay. Um, so I'm going to tell us a little more about this, but also the experience here. So um, what's so cool is that, you know, you're based in Western Mass where all the farms are, but you have this awesome tasting facility in the heart of Boston, Cambridge. Um, Tell us like what you're serving here and is everything in cans, a little bit of your philosophy you have in this tasting room because this is, I think, where more people are probably coming to Cambridge to
2: to taste than going out west, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, out here we definitely have more people and just in general we also have more people uh, from around the world that come through. Um, You know, where we are in Cambridge, it's a, you know, heavy school city so we have uh, always the influx and outflux of students, graduate students and researchers which is really awesome. Um, you know the goal, we do we do cider in pretty much, we try and make it in pretty much every way that we can. Um, you know, a lot of what we focus on is diversity of flavor profiles, but also diversity of approaches. Um, and that you know that's there to serve the idea of of getting people to have some exposure to different ciders. I think that oftentimes you get, very monolithic statements from people who don't know much about cider. They might say, "Oh, I don't like cider because of X reason." Uh, you know, it used to be, "Oh, I don't like cider because it's sweet," or "I don't like cider because it, you know, gives me heartburn," or whatever they might say. And I, I like to, I like to counter that with, "You probably have a cider on here that you will like," um, and and our job is to show them that path. Um, and so we have ciders that range from the kind of tannic. Uh, more traditional European approach to to cider making. Uh, And then we have more that are more of the modern, juicy, fruit-oriented, you know, uh, cleaner expressions, and then everything in between. Um, We do a lot of wild fermentation because I think that that's fundamental to the terroir of where we're working with the the orchards. Um, But we also do some interesting kind of uh, projects like can conditioning. Like we might secondary ferment it in the can And so that's what you might get to taste while you're here, like in a kind of champagne method. Um, We do single varietals. We do blends. We do post-blends. We do pre-field blends. 750 ml bottles, 375s, 12-ounce cans, 16-ounce cans, the whole gamut. uh, Draft cider only that you can take away by growler. It's all about matching the person with the cider that's meant for them. Um, This is such a
1: special place because a lot of times people feel like, oh, I can't only have a cider place. And already I'm like, well, I'm going to taste through at least eight different ciders today and, and leave with some. Let's start with some of the classics. So when, w- there's one here that's called Gold Rush. I know that from Tom Oliver in, in England, but tell us um, you know, why and how and, and what it is. Because right away, as a cider geek, when I see Gold Rush or Roxbury Russet, I'm like, I want to order that first.
2: Yeah, so um, this is the Gold Rush right here. Um, so Gold Rush is actually, this Gold Rush is named after the apple. Um, so Tom's is, I think, more about how you might feel when you drink it. Um, that was a really, uh, (laughs) that was a great, that was an epiphany cider for me. I, I loved that Gold Rush number two, I think was the first one I ever got to try. Or maybe it might have been number one. Um, but this Gold Rush, these apples came from Park Hill Orchard, which is, uh, just down the road from our Florence cellar, uh, about eight miles up the road. Uh, they have this amazing kind of s- sculpture garden there. And we got these gold rushes from them um, just, the, just last year to the 2019 harvest. Um, this was, you know, when we fermented it out, the sugar levels were a little bit lower than you might get from gold rush apples that are grown in like the mid-Atlantic states, because that's kind of, a, gold rush is kind of a mid-Atlantic apple. Um, and so we ended up uh, r- putting a little bit of uh, of oak a treatment in there and kind of giving it in a beer if there, if there was like a beer analogy i would call it like a almost like a grisette you know it's a, it's a it's a straightforward simple low abv farmhouse style kind of wild fermented a little bit of oak simple clean uh gold rush expression um you know we we don't get that robustness that you might get from the apples in, in the in the mid atlantic but that's that's the terroir right there
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's still quite – I don't quite understand how a different region can taste differently. But I know when we were talking to Craig and um, Dan about the American Cider Book, we did an episode just based on southeastern ciders. Um, that's very interesting. So we had the Gold Rush, in which I'm loving. and the, But then you also have um, – is this considered modern? Like this one has a little cranberry in it?
2: Yeah, it's got a little cranberry. So we have a little fruit edition cider. Um you know, for us, we, we kind of stray away from adding too much uh, to the ciders themselves. We mess around with some cocktails here on site, some cider cocktails that are kind of fun. Um, but really, we want to, if it's about the region, if it's about the culture of the Northeast, we want to really focus on Northeastern fruit. And so for us, the cranberry being a native uh, fruit to the Northeast, it's actually, you know, uh, the cranberry is more American than than apples are. Um, and, you know, I think I probably have more in common with apples in the sense that I'm, my family's Asian immigrants. Uh, and so it was kind of a fun idea for us to kind of mix the native with the, with the immigrant, um, together in a cider, uh, called no new friends. And so that's, that's what the idea behind the cranberry one is. It's, it's fun. It's locally driven. Um, you know, and it's really just about telling that story. Talking about like old traditions, maybe pre-colonial Did any of the
1: native people use cranberries in, in like, alcoholic beverages? I've never heard of it.
2: I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, anywhere there's sugar, somebody probably made alcohol out of it.
1: You know, because, like, the the real hardcore cranberry juice is good for, like, for people that need acidophilus or something for their
2: system. So I just wondered,
1: you know, maybe, maybe they did put a little honey in it or something.
2: Yeah. That's that, that, you know, that's a, that's a great idea. Maybe a little cranberry mead might be, might be up, might be in our, in our plans. So,
1: so, so like when you have your, your thought process or I don't know how you, how do you work? Like you plan out, you based on like what, what ingredients you're getting, you know, how, how are like some of these ciders planned out? Like, um maybe pick a different one and just tell me a little of that backstory.
2: Sure. Yeah, so um I'm trying to think of a cider that I haven't really talked too much about. Um yeah, so I mean, yeah, the 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 redfield's actually a great one to talk about. So that's this one right here. Um you know the re- so the redfield, we we can only get so many redfield apples. Um it's a it's a it's a relatively new discovery. Um so Terry Maloney, uh who is the founder of West County Cider. Um, grew a planting of Redfield apples from uh, from an apple that he sampled uh, at I believe it was Geneva Station in New York. It's a cross between the Nizhnevets crab, red crab, and uh, the Wolf River. And the Wolf River is a pretty uncompelling apple, pretty m- kind of for anything except how impressive its size is. And the 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 crab has there's you know it's small but it has this red flesh. And so by crossbreeding them together, they got this medium sized, well bearing. Pretty disease-resistant, uh, red-fleshed or pink-fleshed apple, um, and so really the Malonias were the only ones making a cider out of it for a really long time. Uh, since then, the Scion Woods made its way all over the place. I've had some really tremendously good red field ciders from like Dragon's Head in uh, in Vashon Island in Washington, um, and for us, you know, we we kind of are always looking for some something fun, something interesting to work with. And in 2020, so last year, there was a bumper crop of redfields. Um, so they were more than what, uh, you know, what the, what, what the, the, the Maloney's wanted to use in their cider production. And I had access to a lot that year. So I said, OK, if we're going to have a lot of redfields, what can we do that's a little bit different? What's, what's something that, that nobody has quite yet done with this apple? Um, you know, for the most part, they're relatively clean fermentations. That are um, just bottled in 750s, showcase that, showcase the uh, the, the apple. Um, so what I did instead was we were like, okay, let's first let's do what we normally do. Let's wild ferment. men. Um, and so we let a, a large tank go. Um, we do sponta- sometimes we do spontaneous, sometimes we use cultures that we actually harvested ourselves. In this case, it was a spontaneous fermentation. Um, long and slow, aged on the lees. And then we were like, okay, how can we present this cider a little bit differently? Um, And so what we did was instead of going the 750 route, which you might do with with something special and rare like a Redfield, um, we were like, why don't we do a can condition cider? So what we did was we took that wild fermented base cider, um, added plain sugar and um, yeast back to it, and then filled it into cans still and let it re-ferment that way. So what we have is this unfiltered rosé that's naturally sparkling in a 12 ounce can. Um, So something fun that anybody can pick up and throw in their cooler, but like is made from some of the most exciting rare apples that you can get um, and still having some fun with it. It's almost kind of pet nat like, and it's kind of natural wine expression.
1: And you're getting the names of of the apples out there, which is great. Hey, another thing I wanted to give you credit for is, you know, there's a lot of cider makers that have they're either just they're making great cider, and they may be having like tastings or tasting rooms at their cidery. But the idea of opening a, a separate location that actually has really good service and food and is an operation is really unique. This is, I think, the your artifact place in in Cambridge here, Massachusetts. First place I've been to on the East Coast where I feel like, wow, they really get it. They're representing your product, but there's also really good food and and the staff is great. So, um, can we have your your other staff member introduce himself and tell us a little bit about the food, because this is kind of neat here, right?
3: Uh, hello, my name's Ryan. Uh, what I've got here is some uh, food items from Mimi's Chucket Diner. We've got uh, some pork gyozas and some uh, Sichuan chili wontons.
1: Wow, that's great. So how, how does it feel having a good food program at, at a cider bar? It's unbelievably incredible. Uh, it brings people in. People are stoked to be here for it. We, I mean, we sell so many wontons here. It's crazy. I mean, I love gyoza. What, what would you pair with the gyoza? Because of all these ciders that we have, pick two. Pick two? I would probably go with the Wolf of the Door, and uh, No New Friends would be my go-tos for the, the pork gyoza. Oh, man, thanks so much. We're going we're gonna to snack on this. And then, so on. Um, tell me, th- this is amazing. Like, I mean, I, I've seen breweries start to do this. Like, I know in Brooklyn, uh, Finback Brewery has expanded to Finback Brooklyn, where it's more of a concept where they have a distillery working, and they have a really good, actually, a dumpling restaurant as well. Um, tell me your vision of this tasting room as an operator, because this is not just a cider tasting room.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, besides, besides the idea of, of having this place be fun, accessible, educational, you know, something that like people can talk about when they're with their friends or whatever, you know, we wanted to kind of showcase the versatility of cider as a, as a food friendly beverage. Um, and I think that, most of the time, when you talk about cider and food pairings, it's usually like pork, roast pork, ham, charcuterie, um, or you know, cheese. Cheese is always the answer, uh, as, as my great friend Ryan said. Um, and so what we really wanted to showcase was that like, hey, there's other stuff out there. There's fun food, um, like things like chuka, chuka food, which is a, it's a Japanese interpretation of Chinese food. And it's usually kind of it's almost like diner culture there in Japan, and so these guys are doing these pop-ups in town. And we were like, this food is actually perfect for a lot of our ciders. When you go for something like a pork gyoza, which has these kind of richer, savory elements, dry ciders go great with something like that. When you have spicy food like Sichuan dumplings, um, you know, having some cider with a little bit of residual sweetness or some tannin isn't necessarily a bad thing. The lower ABV of cider uh, makes it something that's sessionable and and food friendly in that way as well. And so a lot of it is to kind of show the world that not only is this reflective of like our region in the sense of like the earth and the climate and the geography, but also the, the culture of this place. Like there aren't there isn't just. People aren't just going out and eating pork when they're out and about. You know, wh- how do normal people eat? They they eat West African food, they eat Thai food, they eat Indian takeout, they eat Mexican food. And we wanted to kind of show that, hey, you guys can zag a little bit and try some fun stuff. So Mimi's, um, they, they're a pop-up. They're doing a six-month residency here. We have a little kitchen set up that uh, is pretty friendly for the idea that people can kind of come in and come out. And so, you know, we're hoping, um, we're hoping to kind of see how this goes. Maybe they stay longer. Maybe we swap it out with something else. Um, but we always want to keep it fresh and always keep it exciting and and show people that there's a different way of thinking about food. And cider.
1: Oh, it's great. Another great place in Brooklyn, Threes. Everyone knows Threes in Gowanus. Same thing. They're set up since day one. There, there's a bar. There's a tasting area. And there's always been a pop-up restaurant. And um, Threes uh, sells our cider too. Wow. So let's talk. We're, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate. For cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at VisitIthaca.com.
1: Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Check us out at heritageradionetwork.org. Support us and become a member. And thank you so much for supporting 12 years of Beer Sessions Radio. All right. So we're here at uh, Artifact Cider Project in uh, it's Cambridge, but I call it Boston. <laughs> um, but still, it's amazing because I really came up here to check out Cider Days in Western Mass. And it turned out that Soham said, why don't you meet me at the tasting room? And I'm getting like, this is the experience that you should have in a any kind of beverage forward establishment. It's like, this is a good pub, mostly serving cider. So um, thank you so much, Sohan. You know, some of the people that have inspired you, I know Ben Watson, who, you know, he's a, a cookbook editor, but he, he's been very important in cider days. Um, let's give a few shout outs to people like that, that, that have talked about you and,
2: and, and encouraged you on the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ben Ben Watson, uh, you know, one of the first cider books that I ever bought was uh, Cider Hard and Sweet, um, you know, that was seminal in kind of the the idea of democratizing people's understanding of how cider is made. Um, you know, he's always been super encouraging at Cider Days from the very beginning. Cider Days is also very important to us. Um, you know, we're both Massachusetts kids. And so, to have the oldest cider festival in the country. Uh, just down the road basically from us uh, is pretty amazing. and so we really love to integrate into that world. Um, you know I talked about the uh, the Maloneys. you know, got to give a shout out to Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo uh, who wrote American Cider. Um, you know they Dan in particular is is so fascinated with cider, um, that he's a font of of information and knowledge and connection, you know, like, hey, I was thinking about this. And and he'll be like, oh, well, you know, such and such in Santa Cruz is also doing that, you know, and you should talk to them. And, you know, as a, as a connector, um, you know, he's amazing. Um, Darlene Hayes has, has also been a really great mentor. You know, Darlene and I have known each other for a few years now. She's the editor of Malice, which is like our little um, industry zine. And, uh, you know, she's been doing an amazing job with that. We I actually wrote, uh, we wrote an article kind of, to, she edited an article that I wrote in there about cider categorization. And I just love, you know, her technical approach or practicality and pragmatism around cider, her open-mindedness to it as well um, has, has been really, she's just been a really great um, kind of peer in the cider world. Um, and, you know, finally, Michelle McGrath, uh, the, the president or the executive director of the American Cider Association. Um, you know, she works tirelessly to get cider advocacy out there in the world. Um, you know, I'd be hard pressed not to mention her. You know, we talk probably once a week, and you know, she's, she's really out there trying to do the best for everybody. And sometimes she doesn't get the credit that she deserves, but you know, I'm here to say that she deserves it. So,
1: wow, man, it's, it's so great. I'll tell you, if, I, if I'm tasting through your different ciders, I say that Gold Rush right now is. For my palate, this is what I want. Okay. How would you describe me as a cider drinker?
2: Okay, so um, <laughs> well, I mean, I want to I want to see what you I want to see what you have to say about the other ones, um, you know. But the Gold Rush, the Gold Rush cider that we have here is a very cidery cider. Um, you know, for for the cider people who have been around uh, a while, um, our palates naturally enjoy ciders like that. Um, good, long fermentation. Lee's aging gives it a little bit of body and kind of almost kind of a creaminess. um, And it's dry. Uh, We love... uh, Dry
1: just on the verge of tartness, but not super sour.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a a relatively medium acid um, apple. And so, you know, the kind of dryness is there just because it's like, it's it's just clean and and it's fresh against the palate. Um, And so I think that at least I believe that over time, um, you know, it's it's a very very subtle drink. So somebody that has the ability to really tap into subtlety in beverage can appreciate ciders like that. Um, you know, a lot of people that are just getting started, they can't really see through, uh, they can't really see through that yet. And so we're hoping to kind of get people to kind of move in that direction. But that being said, not dry dry cider isn't the only good kind of cider. Um, you know dry meaning uh you know pretty much zero residual residual sweetness um it you can have fantastic ciders with residual sweetness it's just if you're really if you have a delicate palate that understands subtlety, those are the kinds of ciders you'll like
1: Wow, that's great so when I walked in um I ended up tasting the wolf at the door yeah, we don't have um out here yeah but uh, the question is is um I read about that you're interested in just using microflora and and natural yeasts, and for some reason, never having tried your ciders, when I heard that, I thought, oh, they're all going to be really funky, and and almost sour, um, and I'm starting to appreciate that you're doing a natural natural cider making.
2: Um, take it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think that that was another thing that when we first, uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, the early days, I would I would inoculate just like any Kind of newbie newbie cider maker might, um, and back then I had a you know a notebook full of, of flavors like oh cinnamon and this and that whatever, and as time went on and the more I started to appreciate the the value of our apples, the more I started getting into okay well how do I, how do we express this apple, and when you get past the how do we express this apple which usually starts with wine yeast, um, you know you're usually not using beer yeast, the next step after that is well. I can still taste the yeast in here. The yeast is doing something to this. How do I really get there? How do I really find the truth of this fruit? And for me, it was it was it was right in front of us the whole time that the microflora that surrounds us, it's, you know, it's the cutting edge of all of, of a lot of uh, medical science these days, but it's also something that's just like a part of the fruit and and where it's from. And so starting to play around with how do we get the microflora to express that fruit on its own um, was a big kind of it took us a few years to figure that figure some of that stuff out. Because oftentimes people are afraid to make wild ciders because they can go towards vinegar. They can have uh, volatile acidity. They can be sour like what you're talking about. Um, But with with a few small interventions, it's possible to let those apples really shine through the natural flora that's there. Um, And that's that's a pursuit that I think probably for the rest of my life, I'll probably keep working on, you know, because there's millions and millions of organisms out there and there's lots of apples to work with in lots of different places. So um, it's just part of the terroir uh, concept for me.
1: Is do you have a goal of like identifying some of those yeasts or you're, you're you're the opposite? You just want to let it happen in the right environment?
2: A little bit of both. So we, um, there, are some, there are some orchards that we work with over and over again. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll spontaneously ferment some ju- raw juice from an orchard that we might work with a lot. Um, when we spontaneously ferment, we might spontaneously ferment a small amount to start. Um, we'll kind of analyze what elements of it we like, what elements we don't like. And then we'll um, kind of grow the culture up over over time. We'll use it, reuse it, um, identify the elements that are working and aren't over multiple generations. Um, and then uh, we'll get, we'll actually separate out the organisms that we don't want and keep the organisms that we do want. And so now we actually have our own little catalog of, of yeasts from orchards that we work with that we've actually banked. And then there's some that we do still to this day that are just spontaneous, and that's what you get in the in the, in the final product. Um, and so it's a kind of like we're capturing wild yeast uh, proper. Um, we're capturing wild yeast, but we're also sometimes just using it spontaneously. So in the case of the Redfield, that was spontaneous. In the case of Magic Hour uh, over here, that's a yeast that we captured ourselves and reuse.
1: And then the one that tastes to me like a, like a Spanish cedra that has that funkiness um, is the proper and I noticed that th- there's a couple that are called taproom seasonals.
2: Yeah, so you know we have kind of three in in terms of the way we're organizing the se- the ciders that we're selling here. Um, we kind of break them up into three different categories. Uh, we have our kind of core ciders that are usually the ones that you can buy in cans. Uh, you can also find them in the marketplace. Um, you know, so you can go to a liquor store, package store, and buy those. Um, and, and those are the ones you can kind of do take away from here. And then we have a variety of different ciders that the seller team works on, kind of carte blanche. Um, we, anybody's allowed to kind of throw an idea out there, what kind of apple they might want to work with, what kind of technique they want to try, you know, everything from aging cider for a year outside to um, doing, you know, post blends of one wild and one, uh, one inoculated, you know, anything like that. And so then we organize it around kind of cellar projects versus taproom seasonals. Taproom seasonals are fun, easygoing ciders that you can just kind of quaff by the pint. Uh, and cellar projects are a little bit more on the fine side of the spectrum. You know, something that you might want to appreciate in a wine glass, take your time with, sip um, instead of instead of swig. So you
1: said that you're at Threes Brewing in... Um in Brooklyn. Sometimes. So
2: what items do they, do they sell cans? Do they sell draft? I think they generally, uh, will probably be buying package. Yeah. Cans from us. Um, so these are ciders that most people in the world can interact with, which is good. Um, so what, what are a couple that,
1: that are going out there in the market to like other States?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, feels like home is probably our, our entry level cider that is as the most, uh, that probably has the most traction outside of Massachusetts. Um, you know this cider is is your is it's reminiscent of apples. Um it's a it's an inoculated fermentation. Um but really it's the the home is the apple storeroom for me in in the in the reference for, for the title. It's a, it's about evoking a, a feeling of being in a at an orchard during harvest season. It's got unfiltered juice added into it. The rum-soaked oak is there not just for structure, but also to, as a kind of nod to the to the old weathered wooden crates that you might see at at an orchard during harvest. Um, it's about half the level of sweetness uh, that you know a ma- mainstream cider might have. And so this is our this is our like hey, you don't know much about cider, but you want you're interested, you're kind of cider curious. This is our like hey, come on in, come on in cider. <laughs>
1: No, it's great. And so it also has um, some barrel aging or rum something. Yeah,
2: we, we, um, we actually take uh, oak chips that have been soaked in rum uh, and then add those into the fermentation portion of the, of the production of that cider. So you can get a little bit of that extraction of those flavors. Um, you know, that when you're in an Apple storeroom, there's like years and years of funk built up, but there's also this enormous flamboyant fruitiness. That you get arrested by on the air on the air on on your nose and so i wanted to kind of play around with that and rum to me as is the cleanest spirit with a bit of funk, especially pot still rums and so having that wood with the rum for me is that like is that old weathered bin that's had you know 20 years of old apples in it uh you know
1: <laughs> well it, it tastes like it i mean what, what's great is that like when you talk about certain barrel aging and and rum or other spirit barrels for beer, you always kind of assume it's going to be stronger and bigger. And it's not always balanced. They can be, but they're not. This is different, though. These are all in the realm of cider. I, I, I heard the, the rum oak pieces, and I just assumed it was going to be like a stronger flavor. But it's, it is really balanced, and there is a nice – it is a sweetness. I can say sweetness, right? And how, how are we going to figure out how to tell people really about dryness? Because I said dry, and I like Gold Rush. But um, then I had the proper, which is like a Spanish funky. You know, it, have you thought about having a board where you break it down by style and how you'd educate people? Because I know you're interested in educating people.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that we are already do uh, is with our with our ciders that are out in cans in the market is we put a little um, we put a little graphic on the side of the can that shows sweetness, acidity, and structure. Um, you know, I think that the conversation around cider is all was so focused on sweetness that we forgot oh. that there's all these other elements to it, especially tannin, especially acid. Um, you know, the, the more the more acidity that's in a cider, the less sweet it'll taste. Um, you know, on on the palate, the more tannin it has, the you know, it'll change the pers- perspective or the perception of that cider. And so, you know, I think that we're starting there. Um, it's a conversation that we'll always have to keep having because you know, one of the things that we notice is that some people mean sweet in one way and then other people mean sweet in another way. You know, sometimes you can have a bone dry cider, meaning there's no residual sweetness at all, but it can smell fruity. And so people say that it tastes sweet. Um, or you can get something that is tannic, uh, but but has residual sweetness that somebody will call dry because of that puckering sensation that tannin has. It dries the mouth, literally. Um, and so it's an interesting conversation. I think that the greatest thing about that is when our staff can interact with our guests, and we can have that conversation in person. You know, there's only so much you can do by putting it on a can and sending it out to a store. Um, really, you got to come here and and have that conversation, and we'll we'll try our best to get you get you on board.
1: <laughs> no, I'm having a great experience, and I'm looking forward to having the goza. Um, and I was I was gonna say I think all the ciders probably go with all, with, all, with your food um which if we're going to sit down and order a full glass what would you order to, to have with the goza now There's a little bit of ginger in there too
2: yeah um you know i think that with the with the seat with the Sichuan, i might actually go with either wolf at the door or proper i love spice and tannin together it's one of my favorite pairings insider um you know we just did uh we we just um Hosted a dinner at a restaurant called Damaka in New York City, um, and that was a revelation. Pairing their goat biryani with Wolf at the Door, it was just, it was like the roof blew off the place. Um, and so I really love that combination of spice and tannin. And then with the with the pure pork gyoza, I think I would, if somebody is willing to kind of uh, try a dry cider, I think that something like the Gold Rush. Uh, would actually go really well. Roxbury russet, uh, because of its kind of pear, herbal tea kind of notes that are in this expression of it, the 2019 that we have, I think that a dry cider with a nice, savory pork gyoza would be really nice.
1: Wow, man, this is really great. Um, I want to ask you a million questions, but one of them is, you use the term forward-looking beverage. I'm kind of getting it by, by being here in person, but how would you explain it to the industry? Because, I mean, for some people, forward-looking beverages is hard seltzer being made by a brewery, and their reps saying, "Well, oh, that's what I'm starting to drink on my, on my day off," which I'm always shocked by.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I think that in a, there is a world where where uh, the kind of like you know AB InBev version of innovation uh, is where we call is what we call forward-looking. I think for us, it's about saying that we have we have this amazing beverage that has a connection to the past of this place, but it actually is more reflective of today and tomorrow than it is of that past. Um, you know, so for us, this, this food, this, the, this expression of this land, the, 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 the diversity of the ciders, that's about pride of place. And it's a pride of place that anybody, any young person, walking down the street from any walk of life, um, you know, from any socioeconomic background, can, can have that pride of place about. Um, because really, it's just the apples that are there. All the rest of it, the experience, the taste, the, f- the flavor profiles, all of that stuff is all us. It's our culture, it's our people. And that's what it's about. Um, it's about looking forward in that way.
1: Um. So I'm spoiled by cider, so I, I, I drank the Gold Rush first and I'm working on the Roxbury Russet, and I like the proper with its funk, and I like the Redfield with its Providence, <laughs> but um, I really could drink all of these, and and that's, you've really done something here, so I'm, I'm not blowing smoke up here, but um, honestly, I have, this is the first place I've been on the East Coast where I can say, I'm actually really getting an education inside, but enjoying myself, and uh, it it's needed, you know, it, it's like, I don't, I'm just really happy, man. So thank you so much.
2: No, thank you. Thanks for coming in. You know, I mean, I always, we always have to remind ourselves that we make booze from apples. It's supposed to be fun. It's for pleasure. Um, and so come in, have a good time. That's what it's all about.
1: Well, it's cool that you didn't go out and just try to make one style. You know, it's like you could have said, I'm just going to make Cedra and then realize that it's kind of like a lot of breweries open. I can say threes cause they've said it. They opened, you know, whatever, eight years ago, they're like, we're not going to make IPA, we're going to make saisons. And of course, they're most known for their IPAs. And, and now they're getting into lagers. Um, Do you feel that same way? Or do you feel like because it's apples, you're, are you driven more by the fruit than you, than you are just by
2: picking a style and making it? Um, I think that for me, it's, it's about creating diversity in the portfolio. So, you know, I'll look at, we'll look at like the, the flavor profiles of what we have, and say, hey, you know, is there is there a gap here? Like, you know, okay, especially in the mainstream deciders the that we send out to the world, you know, it's like, how do we push people a little bit? Has this been done before? How do we how do we get somebody to to get what they're doing? I mean, a part of that also, and I, something that we haven't talked about, is our branding. Um, you know, a, a lot of people judge the book by its cover, and so we do actually focus a lot on trying to get people to connect. To the to the imagery of of the cans themselves so that hopefully they take a chance on it um, and when they take a chance maybe they say hey I don't like this one but they go back to the store and they say hey maybe there's another one there and they try that and especially if they come in they can really try a bunch so for me it's really about showing people that there's this wide range of ways that you can make cider um, first also because it's fun for us you know on the seller side you know we we it's incredibly fun to try new ways of making cider. Like, oh, did you have, what, did you try it this way? or maybe we need to work on this harvest window a little bit better? Should we ask this orchard to pick these a little bit later? You know Oh what are you getting on this? Oh I think this needs a little oak treatment. Okay, fine, let's move it over. You know, it's a lot of fun to make cider for us. You know we really do get a lot of joy out of that. And so I think there's there's that component. To, to your point, the early part of it at least, you know, there's there are commercial needs of what we have. And so you know what we'll do is we'll make cider that um, that people want, and the the stuff that sells is that's one way of of understanding what people like. But there's also other ways, like certain types of uh, restaurants might buy a certain type of cider. Um, and maybe that's a demographic that's understanding Cider in a different way. That's one aspect. Another aspect is that, Palettes change. You know, when we first started, the first cider that we ever came out with was a bone dry blend of Baldwin, Northern Spy, a little bit of de Palm, and some Roxbury Russet even that we had handpicked. Um, the market was not necessarily ready for that. Uh, and it took us a little while to kind of figure it out. But now, seven years in, I'm actually starting to see more people email us about our dry ciders than they do about the, the ones that have residual sweetness. And just that little shift of like, hey, we're more interested in these fermentation qualities. We're more interested in dryness. I tried a Spanish cider. I'd love to see what you guys have. That's changing. And so we kind of are there to meet the moment as well.
1: I'm not going to diss on natural wine, but I will say that one thing I love about what you're doing and and some of the fine orchard-based or harvest-based cider makers is that there is a sense of place, and and that's transparency. Even if you're getting different apples from different farms, we kind of know where it's from. And when, a lot of times when I when I someone I go to a store and it's like it's natural wine, well, it's from country very far away, and I don't dis, d- deny that they're getting natural wine, but it's a little different than go into your regional cider maker. And I I feel like cider kind of lends itself to that, I guess, because we're in the Northeast, right?
2: Yeah, we we have this, we have uh, shorter distances to travel to get to orchards. (laughs) And a lot of us grew up apple picking um, and eating apples as a pretty normal part of our lives. I think one of the fun things about that is like when you compare it to other parts of even the country, the United States. I mean, you know, I've had cider makers from the West Coast blush about how exotic our Macintosh tastes, you know, um, or you talk about European ciders. I think the beauty, the beautiful thing about what we have here in the United States versus like, you know, places far away is that they're very restricted in their rules and their approaches. Um, whereas we can kind of do anything. And so as time goes by and as customers and more and more people become cider aware, a lot of uh, cider makers are there to kind of be like, Hey, look, like, you like natural wine? Like, there's no more natural wine than certain ciders are. Um, you know, you like farmhouse style beers? Like, hey, maybe there's a cider analog for you in there. You like lambic? Oh, cool. We do barrel aged stuff that's funky. Uh, you know, um, there's there's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, any clean. You like uh, you know you like Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand? Like, we can do that for you. You know, and so there's this all this fun stuff that's just right there in your backyard, and it connects directly to your to your uh, personal history um, as well.
1: I think you're doing a great job. Again, like in, in the past, a lot of places that are just focused on their own products, like a brewery, for example, they're not satisfying everyone. And this is really one of the first places I've been for cider in a long time where I can say, wow, there is something here for everyone. But it also makes you work harder, doesn't it? Because your staff has to know what what's here. And I think every person that came here would be happy just having cider. And I know you have a little beer too. Um, but I I used to do that when when I had Jimmy's number 43 years ago, it was like, we only had beer and then we had a little cider. But in the early days before we had liquor and other things, my staff had to work a little harder, but everyone ended up finding the drink that that they were happy with. And I feel like that's what you have going on here at Artifact Cider in Cambridge.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our staff is is bar none here, uh, and in and in Florence, um, at, at the other at, the, at our other tap room at the cellar. I mean, the level of dedication, the level of knowledge and enthusiasm that these guys show day in and day out, with a lot of people that roll through here with no understanding of cider at all. Um, you know, it impresses me uh, to be honest with you, because for me, you know, I'm 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 the cider I'm living in the cider world, cider making world. You know, where it's a little bit torturous it's like art you know um and and so I'm sitting there torturing myself thinking about what the next one's going to be uh while these guys are out here really telling the story um and I think that I really owe it to them uh for that um
1: last question about staff I usually find their front of house staff are are naturally good at explaining you know what, what they're selling and that's part of their talent did your staff did they come in already fans of cider or did they become fans of cider by working with you?
2: So we have an interesting story here. Um, actually, both you know both places is that uh, you know we opened this tap room, uh, reopened these tap rooms in the summer of this year, and we couldn't find anybody. Um, and so we have a handful of people who had heard about Artifact. We had a handful of people that had known about cider a little bit. We have a handful of people that knew nothing about cider at all. And for the most part, the thing that a lot of them have in common is that a lot of them haven't worked that long in the service <laughs> industry. Um, and, you know, I owe it to the general manager here, Megan, uh, who just does a really great job of, of training people to feel enthusiastic about it. And I think that, you know, I also, you know, we do these uh, CIDR school sessions here where we'll kind of sit around and I'll give give a presentation about uh, about the history and, and the importance of CIDR and the the important thing for me, at least and, and I think that for the staff here too, is that we like to contextualize ourselves uh in a global sense. Like not necessarily thinking about it as like, hey, what's the guy down the street doing and what's you know, what's uh our you know, our other cider companies that are in the in Massachusetts up to. We're really thinking about it as like, hey, like we're trying to do this thing for our region, for our for our product that we care about a lot. Like we're here for the world. So Everybody like let's show them what we got let's show them the best that we can do and they they all do an amazing job at that um, and I think it's because they're not that jaded yet <laughs> but they're actually all awesome oh. well, you're a
1: freshman and again where we are it's if you ever come to Boston you go over to Cambridge go to Central Square that's between like MIT and Harvard it's a cool area. my daughter comes here for vintage clothes but next door to us is the Cambridge Community TV. This is some old hardware store that they've really fixed up. Talk about like fresh and, and light colors, and it's, it's really a great spot. So, Selham, thank you so much for joining me. Big shout-out to Armin, our engineer who's going to clean this up. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by SimpleCast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.